Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to today's Federalist Society virtual event. Today, January 25th, we are excited to present the Clean Water Act, Forward to the Past. My name is Jack Capizzi, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Kevin Minoli, who is a partner at Alston and Bird, where he leads the Environment, Land Use, and Natural Resources, Washington, D.C. practice, and is a member of the firm's ESG, Cryptocurrency, and COVID-19 response and relief teams. Before that, Kevin spent 18 years with the Environmental Protection Agency, ultimately serving as the EPA's acting general counsel. We're also joined by Tony Francois, who's a member of the Executive Committee for Environmental Law and Property Rights at the Federalist Society. He's a partner in the San Francisco law firm Briscoe, Ivester, and Basil. Prior to joining his firm, he was an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation for nine years. Tony has litigated many issues arising under the Clean Water Act at all levels of the federal judiciary and across the country. While at PLF, he was lead counsel for Mike and Chantel Sackett, and is currently co-counsel for them alongside the Pacific Legal Foundation before the Supreme Court of the United States, where their Clean Water Act case was argued as the first case of the current term. After our speakers have given their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you do have a question, please type it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle the questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you all for being with us. Kevin, the floor is yours. Great. Uh, thank you, Jack. Um, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it, it says that I, I can't share my screen here, so I'll just go ahead and, and talk about, um, talk through what I was going to sort of do as an introduction, but we thought it'd make a, a it'd be good to spend just a couple of minutes, uh, at the beginning talking about sort of how we got here, um, in terms of the, the new rule that the agencies have just put, uh, put out and sort of what that, uh, you know, didn't come out of nowhere. Um, it is built on a history. And so just spending a, a few minutes at this outset to lay that foundation, um, we thought would be worthwhile. And, and really where we start is the text of the Clean Water Act. Um, that's, that's where everything goes back to. And it's the, you know, section 301, uh, which is the provision of the Clean Water Act that, that, uh, says that the discharge of any pollutant, uh, by any person shall be unlawful. Um, and from there, you get to section 502, which defines what a discharge of a pollutant is. And that's the place where uh, navigable waters shows up for the first time. And, and it defines the discharge of a pollutant to be any addition of any pollutant to navigable waters. Um, navigable waters is also defined in 502, and it's defined as uh, the waters of the United States, including the territorial seas. And so that's how we get to uh, this journey that we've been on for quite a while now um, on, in terms of what WOTUS actually means, what's the waters, what are the waters of the United States, um, and, and, you know, what's the boundaries and limits of those. The reason why it's important to know that um, is because it's not just the wetlands program, but it's, there are multiple Clean Water Act programs that are, that are tied to the definition of waters in the United States. So your uh, water quality standards program and, and total maximum daily load programs under uh, section 303, uh, oil spill programs under 311, state and tribal certifications under 401, your typical industrial discharger permits under 402, and your uh, discharge and, and fill material permits under 404. All of those are, are governed by the definition of waters in the United States. Um, and so it's, it's 
it's it, it oftentimes is brought in the context of uh, these issues are brought up in the context of a wetlands permit, uh, but it is has an application that goes well beyond that in terms of its reach. Um, you know, the last sort of uh, 10 years or so maybe have felt pretty, um, pretty raucous in terms of the, the back and forth and particularly since 2015, the back and forth um, between the different administrations on what the definition of waters of the U.S. Uh, you know should be, but prior to that, um, there was actually a, a good period of calm in terms of uh, where we came from and in terms of the definitions of the of the of what is a water of the United States. There was a period at the very beginning of after the 1972 Clean Water Act was passed, where the Army Corps and EPA actually had differing definitions, um, and so at the very outset there was dueling definitions in the 70s. Uh, that was resolved uh, by a memo uh, written by then Attorney General Civiletti, uh, who said that it was EPA who ultimately had the legal authority to determine what constituted a navigable water. Um, and so, you know, that memo remains in effect, but the EPA and the Army Corps have worked hand in hand since that point. Um, the, the two agencies have had the same definition since 1986, or had had the same definition from, from 1986 all the way through 2015. And while the Supreme Court had um, impacted what that definition meant, um, it had been in effect, you know, everywhere in the U.S. for a, a period of, of, you know, nearly 30 years. Um, it was in 2015 when the uh, Obama administration wrote the Clean Water Rule um, that we first had a real patchwork of, of jurisdiction in terms of where you lived, uh, determine what stat, you know, what definition applied in terms of the reach of the Clean Water Act for you. Um, and that continued to a, a lesser degree under the, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule in 2020. Um, and it remains to be seen whether or not uh, we'll be back in that place in 2023 or, or soon thereafter uh, with the new revised definition of waters of the U.S. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Tony to give us an overview of what that new revised definition is. And then we'll move forward from there. Thank you very much, Kevin. And um, I also want to thank the Federalist Society for uh uh, for uh, having us on today and thank all of you for joining us. So on January 18th, which was just a week ago, uh, the EPA announced a, a new final rule uh, revising the definition of uh, navigable waters or waters of the United States, uh, which as Kevin explained quite uh, quite well, defines the, the boundaries or the footprint, if you will, of uh, both EPA and the Army Corps' Clean Water Act authority um, within the United States. So what I want to do is, is give a, a a, an introduction to the new rule by comparing it to the 2020 rule, uh, which is what immediately preceded it. And then I'll hand it back to Kevin to talk about how the new rule, even though it is largely based on uh, the pre-2015 regulations and, you know, especially uh, regulations that were adopted uh, uh, in the mid-80s, uh, there are actually some differences in the new rule from those older ones, too. So the 2020 rule, uh, I want to start by observing that uh, both supporters and critics of the, uh, the 2020 revised definition of uh, waters in the United States um, either um, critiqued it or applauded it uh, based on uh, a common observation about it, which is that it significantly reduced that footprint. And I think it's just worth 
you know, being aware as you look at the new rule that the 2020 rule may be one of the largest uh, self-imposed uh, reductions in uh, federal regulatory authority, uh, at least in the environmental arena, that, that I'm aware of. And uh, many, uh, many analysts and uh, and policy advocates uh, claimed that the 2020 rule removed federal uh, permitting authority and protection from roughly half of the nation's wetlands. And, and again, supporters of the rule pointed to that and said that's a good thing and critics of the rule pointed to that and said that's a bad thing but nobody really disagreed that it was a very substantial uh self-imposed reduction in uh in federal authority in this area so the 2020 rule uh regulated four basic categories of water bodies these are non-exclusive, meaning that um, you know some some water features would satisfy two or more of these categories potentially, but they they break down into uh, what are called traditionally navigable waters, um, the uh, kind of the long-standing uh, and mostly undisputed federal authority over rivers, lakes, uh, and other features that are used to transport goods and commerce. Um, going back to when that was the main way uh, that uh, goods were moved in commerce uh, and continuing to this day. The uh, the 2020 rule also included the territorial seas, which is an explicit part of the definition, and, and that so obviously makes sense. And so the 2023 regulation, the new rule, uh, continues both of those categories, uh, and I would say generally you know, the, the ongoing inclusion of both of those categories has not been um, terribly uh, controversial. The next category that the, uh, the 2020 rule regulated was tributaries, and those continue to be regulated, but there are substantial differences between the way the 2020 rule defined regulated tributaries and the approach taken in the new rule. And so I'll circle back on that in just a moment. Um, the 2020 rule regulated a category of uh, water body called lakes and ponds, uh, as well as impoundments of, of otherwise uh, regulated waters. Uh, these categories are also carried over in the new rule. Um, the area of the, the category that the 2020 rule calls lakes and ponds sort of, and this is one of the areas where there, there are some fairly significant differences, sort of maps to a category of uh, waters called intrastate lakes and ponds, streams and wetlands. Uh, I'll talk about the differences between those two in a moment as well. And then the uh, the fourth category that the um, the 2020 rule regulated was adjacent wetlands. And the, the 2023 rule continues to regulate adjacent wetlands, but again, with a, a fairly different definition um, of what adjacent means. Um, well, I, well I'll, I'll clarify that in a minute. So there's one category that the 2023 rule adds, uh, which was not regulated by the 2020 rule, and that's uh, interstate waters, including interstate wetlands. Uh, so these you know, might be terminal lakes in the arid west that sit across the state boundary, um, you know, rivers that run without 
draining to larger systems uh, and, and cross a state boundary. Uh, if you're interested in a fascinating policy rabbit hole <laughs> to go down, you can look at the uh, the preamble for each rule and read the debate about whether or not the Clean Water Act intended to uh, adopt prior definitions of interstate waters as a basis for federal regulation. The thing to know in uh, in, in practice is that uh, the 2023 rule reestablishes regulation of interstate waters that otherwise would not qualify under one of these categories. So let's talk about the, the differences briefly, because there's a lot of detail to this. Uh, and if you practice in the area, you'll want to look at the preamble for, for these details. But uh, adjacent wetlands and tributaries. And the, the, the important thing to understand in how these two rules, 2020 and 2023, regulate adjacent wetlands and tributaries is to, to realize that these two types of water bodies or features were the subject of a Supreme Court decision in 2006 called Rapanos versus United States. Um, that decision um, ruled in favor of uh, Rapanos, the, the, the petitioner in that Supreme Court case, um, on the very basic proposition that there are limits to what tributaries and what adjacent wetlands the agencies may regulate under the Clean Water Act. What those limits are is the you know very complex question that Rapanos launched into the world of Clean Water Act practice because there's no majority opinion in Rapanos. Uh, four of the justices uh, joined an opinion authored by the late Justice Scalia taking a fairly narrow view of that, that uh, as to tributaries and adjacent wetlands, the act only regulated, it's its outer limits are relatively permanent and continuously flowing um, rivers and streams as tributaries. And only those wetlands that abut other regulated waters to the degree that it's difficult to tell where one ends and the other begins. And so this is a pretty narrow view of it, much narrower than the agency's practice has ever been. Justice Kennedy uh, authored a, a lone concurrence in which he uh, agreed that there are limits to um, what the agencies can regulate under the act, but expressed a much more expansive way of understanding that. Uh, the shorthand for it is the significant nexus test. Um, under that test, as Justice Kennedy described it, uh, a wetland, either alone or in combination with similarly situated wetlands, is regulated if it significantly affects the physical, biological, and chemical integrity of actually navigable waters downstream of the wetland. And so this is a pretty broad view of it. And in the, the years following the, um, the Rapanos decision, uh, almost all federal courts to have addressed the question have opted for the Kennedy concurrence and its significant nexus definition as the um, the way of defining uh, or, or of um, interpreting the Clean Water Act and what the agencies can regulate. So the 2020 regulation was an effort to um, synthesize 
the plurality opinion and Justice Kennedy's concurrence in Rapanos into, into one rule that regulated some tributaries and adjacent wetlands and not others. Uh, for tributaries, it drew the line at whether the tributary was ephemeral or not. And it took the took the approach that only perennial uh, always flowing uh, streams or intermittent that, that had some um, seasonal flow uh, were regulated, but that ephemeral tributaries, those that only flow in direct response to precipitation, were not regulated. Um, this was particularly controversial in the arid west, where many of the of the uh, the water bodies there uh, are are ephemeral. The new regulation uh, dispenses with that distinction, uh, perennial, intermittent, or or ephemeral, and instead, what the what the new regulation does is it adopts e either the Rapanos plurality, that is. Tributaries are regulated if they're relatively permanent uh, and continuously flowing, okay. uh, or if they have, um, if they significantly affect um, downstream navigable waters. And the uh, the this definition in the in the new regulation uh, requires that tributaries flow into particular types of waters. Um, in order to be regulated. And then in the area of adjacent wetlands, uh, the, the 2020 rule, uh, as I mentioned before, took a much narrower view of what reg wetlands will be regulated and um, limited that to directly abutting or separated from a regulated water only by a barrier of some kind. Um, but that anything farther afield than that was not regulated. The new regulation, again, like tributaries, adopts the Rapanos plurality and concurrence as alternate tests uh, for whether or not a wetland is regulated. So if it directly abuts uh, another regulated water or uh, if it significantly affects either alone or in combination with other wetlands, significantly affects um, a downstream water. I won't take time now. We could perhaps address it in the questions, or maybe Kevin will 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 address it briefly. But the the new regulation includes a definition of the term significantly affect, uh, and provides some um, some factors for the agencies to to evaluate and consider when determining whether or not um, a uh, a wetland or a tributary. Uh, has this significant nexus type connection with a downstream water body. Um, there are several exclusions from regulation that are in the 2020 rule uh, that do not carry over into the uh, 2023 rule, uh, but there are a number that do. Uh, one that protect, per, uh, excuse me, practitioners may want to look at are ditches. The 2020 rule has uh, a definition of ditches. The that are not regulated. The 2023 rule has a somewhat narrower category of ditches that are not regulated under the act. Um, and so, you know, that's a kind of an ongoing difficulty. There's a, wherever there's a road <laughs> in our nation, there there's likely to be a roadside ditch. Uh, and, you know, the agencies have, have long had difficulty coming up with a, a clear 
and like consistently applied rule that captures the common sense idea that just a roadside drainage ditch is not what the Clean Water Act is concerned with. But at the same time, recognizing the fact that many of the ditches in the country used to be natural streams that have been uh, excavated uh, or modified. So those are, I, I want to say those are the main uh, new uh, or different uh, aspects of the uh, of the rule, the new rule. Um, you know, there, there, there is a lot to it. And, um, you know, those who are advising clients or interested in the policy debates will want to will look at the text of it and, uh, and get into those details. But with that, I'll uh, hand it back to Kevin to uh, talk about how this new rule, even though it's modeled on um, the pre-2015 regulations and, uh, and guidance, may differ from those uh, in some respects. Um, you know, you're, that, that intro is, is spot on because uh, the administration said repeatedly that, that what this first rule was going to do, and they had indicated this would be the first of two WOTUS rules that they were intending to write, um, the first one is going to return the, the jurisdiction back to the pre-2015 uh, status quo um, and, and that it was going to adopt the essentially the 1986 regulations as modified by the Supreme Court cases, um, particularly the Rapanos decision um, and the Swank decision. And so, you know, what we expected to see was something that was very close to uh, that 1986 regulatory text with the, the new overlay of significant nexus or the, the Rapanos decision standards. Um, and we did find, I think, some similarities. There are some similarities between what was adopted uh, in the new rule and what was in existence prior to 2015. Um, so as, as Tony mentioned, one of the biggest issues coming out of the Rapanos decision was whether or not um, you could rely on both tests or whether you could rely on uh, just the Kennedy test or Justice Scalia test um, for asserting jurisdiction. The government's position has always been that you could rely on either. Um, and, and that was uh, what was adopted by the government back in 2007, right after the Supreme Court decision and has been consistent throughout. And that's what they did include in the final rule here. Um, so that you'd be there are aspects of both the uh, Scalia standard and the uh, Kennedy standard in the in the final rule. And, and so that's consistent with what was uh, done before. And as um, Tony mentioned, the, you know, the definition of adjacent, um, which is uh, obviously, uh, the, you know, at the center of the Supreme Court's uh, forthcoming decision in Sackett, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, that remains to be that's the same as it was um, uh, previously. And so, you know, there are a lot of sort of foundational pieces that are consistent, but uh, there are important differences between what was adopted in the final rule and uh, what existed prior to 2015. Um, one of those, you know, big areas of differences is that the, the agencies did codify exemptions uh, that had been sort of in practice for a while, uh, but not yet in the regulations. And so, um, you know, uh, Tony mentioned ditches and, and other things. It didn't, it, they did not codify all the exemptions or exclusions that were in the 2020 rule, but they included ones um, that had not been in the 1986 regulatory text. Um, I think that the thing that's going to be potentially the most significant change um, is that they actually changed the standard for what constitutes a significant nexus. Um, and so prior to this, this final rule now, the standard had always been that the um, the impact, the, the nexus had to have more of a, more than a, sp a speculative or insubstantial effect on a downstream traditionally navigable water. Um, so that was what was adopted right after in the Rapanos guidance. 
um, that, that more than speculative or insubstantial effect on a downstream traditionally navigable water standard. Now, uh, in the final rule, it adopted a, uh, a standard where you, the water has to materially influence the chemical, physical, or biological integrity of a, of a downstream water. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that's, I think, a significant change that was not, um, not in the proposal. Um, and it was something that the agencies finalized. Um, and so it remains to be seen whether or not that's something that would withstand, withstand challenge. It's also, I think, uh, further, it, the importance of it, of that change is, is further, is, is exacerbated by the fact that um, for the first time, the government has codified what they refer to as functions and factors that need to be considered uh, when you're making a determination about whether something materially influences another water. Um, and those also were not in the proposal. Uh, so those are those are you know important critical things in terms of determining whether or not you've got a, a significant nexus um, that are all brand new in the final rule. And so you know those are things that I think uh, will be areas where people will want to uh, you know raise in their in their litigation. We'll talk about litigation in, in a minute, but um, you know those are things that stand out to me. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that the agencies uh, did attempt to uh, take the position that. If a part of this rule is found to be invalid, that the remainder of the rule it should be you know left in place and be remain in effect. Um, they, so they spent time in the preamble talking about the severability or segregability of, of different provisions um, in an attempt to try to save portions of the rule if any one portion is deemed to be uh, beyond their authority. Um, you know that's it's something that within the last two rules, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule and the Clean Water Rule. Um, when courts set aside, you know, the rule, it was set aside in total. Um, it was not sort of broken out piece by piece. Um, but that was not always the case. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court in the Swank decision certainly curtailed the 1986 definition of, of waters in the United States. But the remaining, you know, parts of definition remained in place for, you know, many, many years after that. Um, so it's both sort of not um, it's sort of novel for the government to take that position, but also not necessarily uh, novel if the courts follow it. But, uh, you know, it remains to be seen whether the courts would agree that just because the agency has said that they should be segregated or severable, um, that they will be treated that way. Um, so I think it's a, there's a, there's a significant number of changes compared to what the agencies at least have, had said that they were indicating that they were going to do in terms of modeling this after the, the 1986 rule. Um, you know, that, that last point in terms of severability and, and whether or not a, a court decision will uh, on one aspect of the rule will be fatal to the, you know, the remainder of the rule that tees up the question about whether or not the, the agencies have achieved their goal of having a durable rule. You know, one of the things that, that, that both the leadership of EPA, and the leadership of the Army Corps said repeatedly throughout the development of this 2023 rule uh, was that their goal was to have a durable rule. Uh, that would last longer than, you know, than the last two had lasted. Um, and that would be, you know, be able to withstand challenges and, and uh, withstand, you know, the scrutiny that it was going to obviously be under. Um, so I think we're going to transition now to talk a little bit about whether or not we think the, uh, the government has achieved that goal. Um, and I'll get, I guess I'll let Tony go first in terms of his thoughts on it. And then I'll, I'll chime in with mine. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, and thanks for that, um, um, that analysis. There's two there's two ways that the the agencies face litigation on on the scope of their authority. 
for a very long time, it was almost exclusively individual permitting decisions, but more frequently enforcement cases. And so um, the Riverside Bayview Homes, which was one of the important cases in the mid 80s, what was a permit decision. Um, the Rapanos case was an enforcement action. The Swank case in 2001 uh, that dealt with the migratory bird rule was a, was a permitting um, issue. The Sackett case is a permitting case. The Hawks case that was decided a few years ago on um, the ability to challenge approved jurisdictional determinations is a permitting case. And so I think it remains to be seen kind of what the fate of the current of the new rule is in those kinds of uh, settings, um, because those those are very factually bound. Uh, and so I'll talk about the Sackett um, situation in, in just a moment uh, as a good illustration of that. Um, the other kind of litigation that has arisen in the last uh, seven years is that the definition of navigable waters under the Clean Water Act has joined the ranks of uh, political legal issues uh, that that are part now of the red state, blue state industrial complex. And um, my thought on that, after uh, having participated in that and observed it now for uh, for for quite a while, is the courts, to my observation, seem very resistant. Um, district courts and circuit courts, very resistant to, I think, getting drawn into the back and forth pendulum swing between administrations of different party um, outside of concrete factual situations. And so there's been a lot of litigation. There have been uh, injunctions and stays issued. Uh, the 2015 rule fared rather poorly. The 2020 rule had pretty mixed results in this litigation, but all of it was mostly procedural. And, you know, there are very, uh, very few uh, presidential decisions uh, on either of those rules. So my sense is that this rule, uh, depending on the outcome, in a certain sense, depending on the outcome of the second case, but in another sense, depending on what kinds of enforcement actions wind up getting litigated, um, you know, may fare better than the last few have. The, uh, it's kind of an opportunity to talk about, you know, what, what impact the Sackett decision might have on this. The, the important thing, I, I won't get into the facts of the Sackett case other than to say that it, it was a perfect vehicle uh, for Supreme Court review because almost explicitly agreed between the Sacketts and EPA, if the case was decided under the Rapanos plurality standard of direct abutting for wetlands, then the Sacketts as a matter of law would win because the EPA's record demonstrated that it did not have that kind of connection. If decided under the significant nexus test, uh, although the Sacketts hotly contested that below, um, the federal courts very easily uh, upheld the EPA's um, assertion of authority on the significant nexus test. Uh, and, you know, under that approach, their property is regulated. And so as a question for the court, you know, would you like to take this 414 decision and try to turn it into a five or six to, to something decision 
that, that provides some better clarity about what's regulated, uh, it, it, it had great appeal. There's two things that came out of the argument that I think are really important. One is that there's, I did not hear any uh, interest or support uh, from any member of the court for retaining Justice Kennedy's significant nexus opinion. And I, I think that is probably going to go by the, by the wayside. EPA made clear, though, during that argument that it does not see the significant nexus test as a gloss on or a way of understanding the term adjacent when it comes to adjacent wetlands and that uh, adjacent wetlands defined as bordering contiguous or neighboring uh, is a parallel and independent source of their authority. And that even without the significant nexus opinion uh, from Rapanos, the agencies still take a fairly broad view of what neighboring is. And uh, the point in the argument at which uh, Justice Gorsuch and the Solicitor General kind of, kind of refused to agree with each other anymore was around a mile from a from another regulated water body. And, um, you know, the Solicitor General would not say as a matter of law that a mile is too far away. Um, most of the enforcement and permitting cases are closer than that, but it illustrates that um, while significant nexus may not be long for uh, for the books, the scope of adjacency will continue to be. And the only question that the Sackett case sort of would reasonably address is, does adjacent extend across a road through which there are no hydrologic connections, no culverts, no seepage, you know, no drainage? And if the court says uh, yes, that adjacent in the statute uh, and is used in the regulations can include those kinds of over the road or over the barrier wetlands that the agency has uh, regulated almost from the beginning, then that doesn't say much about the fate of what adjacent means in these regulations. Um, and the agency will probably be able to continue using a, a broad view of adjacency uh, to, uh, to regulate wetlands that, you know, don't have obvious connections, uh, at least surface hydrological connections to other regulated waters. On the other hand, if the court in Sackett says, no, you may not um, regulate wetlands that don't have a direct surface connection, um, then that will um, <laughs> have a significant effect uh, on, uh, on the scope of adjacency in the, in the regulations. And, you know, I think would probably require a rewrite. Um, so I, I'm very curious what the, what the agency, I mean, setting aside SACA for a minute, what the agency has in mind uh, for its second step rulemaking that it, uh, it hopes to have out this fall. Um, I don't think that the, you know, so round, I think, four of the red state, blue state litigation over this regulation just started. I, I don't think that's going to make a, a big difference in, in the outcome of the regs. Um, uh, we'll see. But um, I, I think at best those wind up um, stalling the resolution of the substantive legal questions, which I, my you know, sort of accrued experience 
you know, tells me are actually only going to get resolved uh, by the courts, eventually the Supreme Court, in individual enforcement cases. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, um, I actually think that the, the agency's new rule is under more risk uh, from those initial uh, facial challenges than, than it sounds like that you might be. Um, and, and the reasoning, reason I think that it's, they're under more risk is in part because of uh, how the agencies responded to the, the district court decision regarding the navigable waters protection rule. Um, so that, you know, is, is just to remind folks that was a district court decision after a number of courts had, had declined specifically to vacate the rule. Um, they remanded the rule or, um, or they had not yet made the decisions. A single district court um, initially uh, vacated the navigable waters protection rule prior to actually going through briefing, prior to going through summary judgment motions um, and, and having an actual, uh, you know, case, you know, put for, before them, the court um, found that the rule could not have been, you know, would not be able to be sustained, uh, be repeated or supported and so vacated it. Um, and there was an immediate question about, well, was that vacate, you know, that vacater, was that only limited to the District of Arizona or was it limited or was it broadly across the nation? Um, and and the government ultimately, while seeming to sort of not wanting to go, you know, make its its opinion known, is immediately ultimately adopted the view that it was a nationwide injunction, a nationwide vacature of the of the rule. Um, you know, that's a significant change from where the the government has been, at least in the, the nearly twenty years that I was there. Um, the government, you know, the EPA in particular, was very reticent to ever concede that a single district court could issue an order that would have nationwide impact or effect. Um, it, and it, it came down to uh, times whether the, the, the court had said the plain language mandated a certain result um, that at times would be treated as nationwide. But if it was not at that level, then, then it was just determined to be only applicable in the district that the, of the court that, that made the decision. You know, here it was um, in the agency's interest in the new administration to have that the Navigable Waters Protection Rule taken off the books, simplified what they had to do in some respects. Um, and I think they were under a lot of pressure to to, to accept the, you know, the opportunity as it, that was in front of them and to say that it was a, a nationwide injunction or a nationwide vacature. But that has potential ramifications for the fact that that we're going to see litigation in a number of district courts across the country, whether they be these this initial round of facial challenges or the enforcement and permit specific challenges that Tony was talking about. Um, and it's going to be much more difficult for the agency to say when one district court, you know, vacates the rule, um, and, and there will be some judge somewhere, probably, uh, that vacates the rules, um, that, that that's going to be hard for the agencies to say, well, no, that that vacature doesn't really apply anywhere else. Um, and so I think that, that, that the agencies, you know, may have made an expedient decision in, in embracing the, the nationwide uh, effect of that district court decision. But I think it's a strategically, a, it's a it's a difficult one. It's going to come back to potentially come back to be a problem. Um, because, you know, as, as folks may remember, the Supreme Court has already said nine to nothing um, that all these challenges go in district courts and, and the district courts, it is hard to hard to go uh, undefeated in the district courts. And, and so I think that it's going to be a challenge for them um, in that regard. Um, I also think that that, it, you know, the procedural um, vulnerabilities of the rule are not insignificant in terms of the things that were finalized in the final rule that, that, that did not appear in the proposal 
that are sort of fundamental or fairly fundamental to, to the, how the, the new, um, you know, jurisdictional approach operates, you know, the definition of, of significant nexus, the factors and, for, and functions, those are things that typically um, you would expect that the, the Administrative Procedure Act requires people to have notice of um, prior to that being finalized in a rule. And I think there's going to be some significant uh, vulnerability for the agencies and having to explain why uh, those are all logical outgrowths of the proposal. Um, so I see, I think I see a little bit more vulnerability there than, than, than I think Tony does. And on the flip side, see a little less vulnerability on the, on the potential outcome of the Sackett case. Um, you know, had, had we had this conversation before the oral, oral arguments, I would have been absolutely, um, I was in the camp of, of this is going to be a decision that, that decides whether or not, uh, you can use the Kennedy test and, or the Scalia test. Um, I think, you know, at least what I heard in the oral arguments was really trying to, to not, you know, to stay away from that, um, needing to make that decision doesn't mean, and, you know, we all know that oral arguments don't always mean, you know, they're not always the same in oral arguments as what we see in the, in the opinions. And so it could be a difference there. Um, but I, you know, I, I heard an intense focus on that, what adjacent means and whether it means abutting and whether it means touching in, in a way that I was not frankly expecting in terms of uh, how that argument you know, played out. So um, I think it remains to be seen, but I think there's more vulnerability on the district court level um, and maybe a little less on the Supreme Court level. So one, um, actually two brief thoughts also on, on vulnerability. I see in the, in the, in the new rule, uh, an adaptation to two uh, increasingly prominent themes of the Supreme Court, uh, one being Commerce Clause and the other being non-delegation in the way that the, the new rule is written. The 1986 regulations um, had a provision regulating, quote, other waters, and it didn't fit the definitions in the other categories, um, but broadly regulated any waters that um, could be um, implicated by sort of the outer, outer third ring commerce power that it was articulated by the federal courts through the 20th century. And um, it, it was one of those, uh, an elaboration on that, the migratory bird rule that the Supreme Court refused to uh, uh, allow in Swank. Uh, and in Swank, there's a, an important discussion about both the 10th Amendment and the, you know, what's called the uh, clear statement rule. Uh, for the exercise of the, the outer limits of the commerce power. The new regulation limits itself to the Scalia and Kennedy tests from uh, Rapanos. And, and it's, it, it, it is probably not an enormous difference in terms of what will actually get regulated on the ground. But doctrinally, it's a walk away from the Clean Water Act being an exercise of the broadest scope of the commerce power. Uh, it repudiates a couple of the floor statements uh, by the uh, by the conference managers uh, that are frequently uh, cited in the circuit court opinions. And so I, I think that that reflects, you know, growing awareness that the Supreme Court is, you know, thinking much more closely about the, the breadth of the commerce power. The other is delegation. If you look at the definition in the new rule of uh, significantly affect, it's got um, uh, factors and I forget the other word, but it, it's got two categories of things that the agency is supposed to look at. Functions. The, functions is the other category. Factors yeah, functions and, and factors. And, and yeah. those map pretty clearly to some of Justice Gorsuch's writings 
in 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 some of his opinions about what kinds of things need to be there for uh, a statute to uh, or a regulation in this case to survive either vagueness or non-delegation scrutiny. The, you know, the agency and its staff need to have types of facts that are important and guidance on how to weigh those facts. And uh, I, I think in part, that's what you see in that definition of significantly affect. And uh, so I think that, um, for example, um, you know, set aside the doctrinal question of whether you can cure a non-delegation problem in a statute with a regulation. Um, if you take the regulation as, as sort of filling in those details, I think that insulates it pretty well from, uh, from a non-delegation challenge. Um, and I think that it just reflects that, uh, the, the current sort of architectural interests at the Supreme Court, uh, are finding their way into agency practice and, um, and affecting the way that uh, regulators think about their authority. Yeah, I mean, this rule was clearly, uh, written in large part by lawyers, or at least the preamble, um, in particular written by lawyers. And, and, and I know the folks who, uh, worked on it, they're all brilliant lawyers. And, and so they, they are thinking about those things and they've been, you know, they're not just thinking about the district court, thinking about what the Supreme Court is going to need and look for and, and the like. Um, so I do, I agree with you that there was a, the influence is there and, and, and the attempts, you know, some of these changes are attempts to try to, uh, speak to what they think the justices are going to require. Should we take a look at some of the questions that have come in? Um, so maybe I'll, I'll read the first one and we'll see who, uh, which one of us wants to answer it. The question is, uh, did EPA's failure to rescind the, or amend the 2019 WOTUS rule further muddy the water for the recently promulgated WOTUS rule? Um, although the 2019 rule is substantially similar to the US Army, the EPA Army, uh, WOTUS rules from the 1970s are wording, text, and organizational differences. You know, I don't know that it, I would say at this point, I don't know that it muddies the water very much because this rule would have supplanted whatever was in existence beforehand. Um, and so I think there may have been that that period in which the agencies were treating the, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule as having been vacated, um, where there's some confusion or could have been some confusion about what rule was really in place or what standard was really in place. Uh, but I think now with the new rule that that resolves that the one way that it could come into play would be um, if somebody could allege that the the economic analyses and those, those other things that the agencies are required to do looked at the wrong baseline because it presumed that the 2019 rule was not there when it really was. But I think, as this notes, the 2019 rule is not significantly different um, from what the practices were prior to 2015. And so it's it's more likely that um, that this is probably not going to make a difference, um, in, in my, my, my suspect. Um, yeah, there's, um, I, I think it's more doctrinal than practical, but there is kind of a nesting doll effect that's accumulated since 2015. One of the, one of the red state challenges to the 2015 rule is still pending in the district of North Dakota. Um, with a like every six month status report over the concern that if challenges to subsequent rules result in that rule being vacated, at, at some point you may actually like collapse back to 2015 as the rule as the status quo. 
Um, most of those cases have been dismissed by now. And I think as a practical matter, I, I mean, the courts are not going to, you know, it's like blockchain technology, right? There's just too much energy involved in ripping off the top block to get to the one below it. And I do think, though, that it would be salutary for the agencies of whatever administration to just stop rulemaking long enough for some of these substantive issues to get litigated. Um, there's um, for those who are interested in in kind of this aspect of the problem, there's a remarkable oral argument you can find on the Ninth Circuit's um, YouTube channel argued last fall in American Rivers versus American Petroleum Association over the Trump administration's 401 certification rule. And similar to Kevin's description of the single district court vacature of the navigable waters rule, there's a district court vacature of the 401 certification rule that um, the Supreme Court then stayed on the shadow docket. And now they're litigating what's what's the actual status quo in the Ninth Circuit, where the plaintiff environmental organizations want to litigate the merits of the case. They don't want the case dismissed and the rule vacated based on EPA's repudiation of the rule with change of administration. And the argument is just some fascinating administrative law uh, conundrums. Because at a certain point, like Kevin said, you do get this uncertainty about what the baseline is from which agencies are doing their environmental analysis, their economic analysis, uh, and even you know if it, if it if it is vacated, what it reverts to. Um, and as a practical matter, though, I think basically nobody. For example, when the 2015 rule was stayed. EPA just announced what it was going to be doing instead. And nobody really challenged that. And in practice, that is just what happened. And I think that's probably the way it's going to work out. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, um, whether the agency can just articulate, OK, we're going to do this instead, um, that in and of itself is, is something that probably should go through rulemaking in order to get uh, to get something but it, it's uh there weren't challenges brought on those sort of statements on the interim um for whatever reason um you know i know that i was at the change from the um bush administration to the obama administration i was a water attorney then and and um one rule that was challenged that was sort of in that sort of uh, affected by the change administration was the stream buffer zone rule um, which deals with uh, mining and, and how close you can come to streams. Um, and in that rule, the government, we went in and said we professed error, that we had not confessed error, we had not uh, consulted on the Endangered Species Act. We asked the court to vacate the rule, and the court said, no, uh, they can't do that. And so uh, it's interesting to see, you know, eight years later, 12 years later, um, courts, uh, at least a few courts, didn't have any problem vacating a rule. Um, and, you know, the court's reasoning in the stream buffer zone rule case was that you can't do the government can't ask the court to do what it couldn't do itself then uh, without going through the rulemaking process and so it was going to force the government to go through a rulemaking process to withdraw something that was uh, promulgated appropriately um turning to another question um here there's a question about did the panelists have any comments on the severability clause that epa included in the what is definitional rule it appears to be directed uh, at a potential ruling in socket two i mentioned a uh, 
that that severability clause a couple of times, but I'd be interested to know your thoughts on it, Tony, whether you think uh, courts will adopt it or, or not, or whether, you know, whether it was necessary. Well, I, one of the things that um, at Pacific Legal Foundation, we focused on uh, in the, in the litigation for the clients that we represented in the sort of the facial challenges to the, the 2015 rule, as well as defense of the 2020 rule. We also represented clients that were challenging parts of the 2020 rule. Is that, um, you know, we tried to focus on particular parts of the regulation and, and the, the, the injunctive relief we asked for was targeted at particular parts of it. And then we didn't really argue that it was not severable. Um, I have been kind of curious. I, I don't know that there's a good answer to it, but um, it has seemed to me there, there's been congressional pressure on the agencies to wait until the second ruling is out before adopting a final rule. Um, it has seemed to me risky for the agencies to, to basically adopt both the the plurality and the concurrence from Sackett from from Rapanos and risk the the Sackett decision essentially excising the concurrence uh, version of the regulation and just leave the fairly narrow um, Rapanos plurality definition for both adjacent wetlands and um, and um, and tributaries. And you know, I've been curious what the agencies strategy for that will be if that's the outcome of the Sackett case. Um, but you know, the fact that they've got another rulemaking planned for later this year is probably kind of what they what they plan on doing in any event. But um, I think that the severability approach is perfectly appropriate. Uh, I mean, the the way that the the way that the agencies have always structured this definition of their authority is is kind of like a well, it's a water system, right? I mean, the main trunk are the traditionally navigable waters. Then, as you go farther up the watershed, you've got these different connections that are established to bring in to regulation other things that aren't traditionally navigable. And I don't see any problem with saying if if this part of it, if that connection is is not found valid, well, the rest of it has its own you know, criteria for being connected to the traditional navigable waters. And if that's not challenged, there's no reason to disturb that. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, to me, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I, I, again, I think that's one area where, um, you know, the, the factual development in the, um, the declarations and the showing uh, in in the various efforts to get injunctive relief against these rules at, at each iteration has been, I mean, in my view, relatively thin. Um, and that, um, uh, you know, it uh, it probably helps the agency quite a bit to be able to say, well, here's the, the five or seven categories that are regulated. Of them, four are unchallenged by any of the declarations and any of the briefing. And, um, you know, I... I I think it's a pretty hard argument to make for this type of regulation that 
you know, if the wetlands at the outer edge of the watershed can't be regulated, then none of it can. No, I, I would agree with that. And, and like I had noted that, you know, when the, the swank decision came down or with the, uh, um, you know, other decisions came down that sort of reined in, you know, Rapano's decision reined in the authority. Uh, no one treated the other provisions of the definition as being sort of, you know, similarly invalid or similarly restricted just because the court had opined on, on certain aspects of the, dis, uh, the overall regulation. You know, I, I do think though that, um, you've alluded a couple of times to sort of the areas of agreement or areas that are, are less controversial. And, and, you know, I know that, um, at least I advocated at the beginning of the administration that, that they not simply scrap the old rule uh, in its entirety, but rather identify where they want to build on it or change it and try to sort of uh, try to find a place where at least some of this rule stays in effect more than more than three or four years, um, because it's not good for anyone um, to have this amount of change every four, three or four years, because, you know, it, even if you like one perspective over the other, you can't per, you can't depend on it. You can't rely on it. You can't make business plans and, and you know, and, and, and business decisions about what it's going to be in four or five years if it if it's, you know, keeps up like this. And so, you know, this could be an attempt to try to also slow the pendulum down or at least how much how big the pendulum is um, when it swings back and forth. Um, whether or not a court will agree to it or not remains to be seen. But I think you're right. It hasn't been that way prior, you know, hasn't been until 2015 that we had sort of these full rule vacatures um, in this context. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, what courts do with it now. We have a couple more minutes. Um, uh, let's see. Um, taking a question here, please speculate on how Sackett and the compositions of the district court since 2016 may constitute to may continue to erode or delimit federal jurisdiction beyond Clean Water Act and perhaps beyond the EPA. But, you want to take that one? Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I mean, the original, the first Sackett decision had to do with the um, uh, availability of judicial review of a, an EPA administrative compliance order. Uh, that was followed by the Hawks uh, decision, which came to the same conclusion, uh, both unanimously on judicial review, it being available, of approved jurisdictional determinations. Both of those decisions have ultimately, I think, had a fairly broad effect in administrative law generally and the types of agency um, determinations that are reviewable um, and when they're reviewable. The Clean Water Act, I mean, my my view is that the, the, the structure and the text of the Clean Water Act are quite different from, for example, the Endangered Species Act. And so while in practice, there's a lot of overlap there. And uh, I mean, one of the one of the practical issues with, for example, a, a more restrictive definition of adjacent wetlands is that frequently uh, the need to get a federal permit uh, to discharge into federally regulated uh, wetlands is the gateway to Section 7 consultation under the ESA because of the, the, the reach of critical habitat that, that, that includes those wetlands. But that if you're just looking at straight up legal questions about the text of the statutes, um, one, the Supreme Court's been much more interested in the Clean Water Act than it has been in the ESA. 
um, much to the chagrin of, I, I, I'd take an ESA case for every three tax cases or patent cases that the, the Supreme Court does, uh, but they're going to keep doing the patent cases, I think. Um, so I don't know that there's a lot to read out of whatever the court does with, uh, with the Clean Water Act and SACED into other federal statutes. Right. And then maybe just uh, one last one real quickly in the last minute. Um, question is that, Tony, that you had mentioned a uh, government's loss of, of significant, significant nexus on contiguous and neighboring waters rather than adjacency. Rapanos Kennedy does appear to apply the significant nexus test to determine if a water in general is a WOTUS regardless of adjacency and then adds adjacency as another way a wetland could be a WOTUS. However, much of the litigation and the circuit court decisions interpreting Rapanos treat significant nexus as an adjacency test. Why is there this disparity? So that's an interesting question. And that's one of the reasons I, I called that out from the, the argument in Sackett is EPA's emphasis that these are separate parallel definitions of the, of the reach of their, uh, their authority. My recollection of the 2015 rule, I don't have it right in front of me, is that it used the significant nexus um, concepts to define adjacent for adjacent wetlands. Um, so that may be one source of that. Uh, I don't recall off the top how that was expressed in the 2007 Rapanos guidance, but that but that may be a source of it as well. But it's 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 quite clear the agency's view of it now uh, is that. Um, adjacent and and that definition of adjacent is including neighboring is is in their view not limited by um the uh you know the presence or absence of the significant nexus concept uh and that they're um you know if you want to look at the second briefing there's some discussion about kind of how these two things operate side by side um so i I think that may just have been, you know, some period of time of agency practice, kind of assuming that these kind of meant the same thing. Um, it may also just be that the plurality is very focused on this is how adjacent a wetland has to be for it to be regulated as an adjacent wetland. And Justice Kennedy's opinion seems to be trying to answer the same question. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, it, it, I mean, I would say for a long time, I read it as some kind of substantive content to the term adjacent. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think in 20, the 2007, 2008 Rapanos guidance, <clears throat> we viewed it as um, if it was adjacent to a traditionally navigable water, significant nexus or, or you know, the Rapanos really didn't apply or didn't, didn't restrict you at all. Um, and so that could be where this, the genesis of that, that, you know, the significant nexus test not being relevant to adjacent wetlands in that same way. But it was, we always viewed, the, the guidance always viewed that, that the uh, significant nexus test was for wetlands and other things that were adjacent to waters other than traditionally navigable waters. So your upstream tributaries and the like. But um, I know we're, we're out of time. I don't, it, there we go. Jack's can come back and, and wrap us up here. Sure. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Kevin. And uh, on, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our audience for attending and Kevin and Tony for their valuable time and expertise. As always, please keep an eye on our website and your emails for any announcements about upcoming webinars. And uh, lastly, we do welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. 
Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.